Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Right, here we go then. We are recording. We are recording. So welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and uh, we welcome back. Michael McMullen, uh, I, I don't know. I feel I should maybe talk really quietly because there's a new baby mm. in, ta- in town. Uh, things are well, yes? Don't worry, he sleeps all the time anyway, so it wouldn't yeah. make any difference. Yeah, a- Andrew was born a couple of weeks ago and uh, his entry for Q School 2036 <laughs> has already been filed. And of course, his brother will already be on tour a couple of years by then. So mm. something to look forward to. Well, it's a great story to tell him when he's old enough to understand the, the sort of times that he was born in, into. Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. In fact, we gave him the middle name Luke because uh, that's the patron saint of healthcare workers. We felt we should ah. mark it in some way. So, uh, yeah, extraordinary. And I mean, you should have seen the gear they had me done up in in the delivery room. I mean, mm. just, you know, I looked like something from Pigs in Space, the old Muppets thing. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was an extraordinary times to be having a child. But uh, it's all it's all life experiences. Definitely. OK, well, the, the first thing I need to do is, um, by the way, this, on this edition, we're going to be talking about uh, Peter Ebden's retirement. He announced last week he's retiring because he's got this horrible net complaint and also we're going to be looking at some players who rose pretty quickly and then seemed to sink pretty quickly as well um we didn't have many emails last week and one of the reasons is i didn't i forgot to give the email address out <laughs> which of course does help so i'm going to do that one week and the whole thing goes to pot well i see i was dealing with neil and you know neil, neil is a bit of a diva you know i had his rider to sort out you know you can't look at him in the eye anything like that so i had i had all that going on so i forgot to read the email address out so i'll do that at the start so that i don't forget if you want to contact us about anything that you hear or any ideas you have any questions whatever snooker scene podcast at mail.com at snooker scene podcast at mail.com i'll get to an email we, we had uh, in a moment just to catch up on a few things of course we had the virtual world championship um which was played on the snooker 19 game and oddly enough my interest in that uh, rose quite significantly when i was asked to commentate on it um <laughs> which is an interesting experience it, it involved me sitting for many hours many hours um commentating on on the matches and mark selby won it mark selby john higgins was the final and the strange thing was obviously the guys playing it as the players they're really experienced computer game players so they're actually really good and the match kind of went the way you'd expect a Selby Higgins match to go. There was a lot, of, a lot of really good safety played, you know, some high breaks as well. And the decider was 75 minutes long. And I happened to know because he, te- he texted me during it that Selby was watching and Sel- Selby, re- Selby really wanted to win. He really wanted to win it. So, and he sent a nice message to the guy, Scott Edwards, it was who won it. So, uh, so that's passed. Of course, all the, um, the crucible uh, that the time the world championship would have been on has gone. So all the sort of nostalgia stuff that was going on has now stopped. And, and funnily enough, I thought the time of the world championship might be quite hard for, for snooker fans because, you know, they'd be thinking we should be watching the world championship. There was so much to entertain them. Maybe it's actually now that it's passed that they, snooker fans may be thinking, okay, so now suddenly, you know, what, what have we got to watch the thing? Although a lot of it, of course, is still on the YouTube Next week, uh, if we record the podcast on the same day, we'll be just about equidistant between the day the Tour Championship was initially called off and when it's supposed to be on again. Um, so, you know, we're talking a couple of months to the sort of middle, or late on in July, and then obviously the World Championship meant to be on after that. We don't know uh, if that can happen. One thing that occurred to me was a couple of things, actually. One thing someone pointed out 
with this social distancing, the players can't possibly sit next to each other at the Crucible like they normally do. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's uncomfortably close anyway without, you know, problems about picking up a horrible virus. Um, I guess with no audience there, which seems almost certain there won't be, they can reconfigure things and sit, sit apart. But also the other thing, you know, the moment all the hotels are shut in the UK, if they don't reopen in time, that, then we can't have a world championship or a sporting event like that because people have got to stay somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm just... thinking that. I, I would, I would say by then, I, I think. I mean, obviously we're waiting on Sunday. I know we had our kind of roadmap laid out in Ireland mm. uh, last Friday, I think it was. I know in the UK you're waiting for it on Sunday, so we'll get a better idea then about all that sort of thing. Maybe they'll all have to stay in some massive house somewhere. Maybe the Big Brother house is free. Maybe they, they can all have to stay in that and maybe play it somewhere around there. The thing I was thinking as well was absolutely the players will have to to sit apart from each other, um, but won't they have to wear gloves on their bridge hand as well because I mean, these guys perspire a lot and they're leaving that on the table. I mean, can you pick up the virus that way? Uh, may they have to wear gloves as a precaution? Could be a comeback to the likes of Nigel Gilbert and Ian Graham, who, of course, used to wear gloves on their bridge hand all the time. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, it's a good point. And, you know, most players would not have played with gloves. You, I mean, Ross Muir was one who did, a more recent, yeah. uh, more, more recent player. But, yeah, it would be – that's a good point. And, and, and I guess the problem as well, like, you, you'd want to, I suppose, practice with the gloves beforehand. But at the moment, unless you've got a table in your house, you can't even do that. There's other – I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people involved in the World Championship in terms of – the crew backstage they can sort of strip that down um the call the commentary and the presentation can be done i guess from a studio somewhere else maybe in london they don't i mean hazel and co don't have to be there same for eurosport they don't have to be at the crucible a lot of sports don't like that anyway and also the actual media backstage i mean that media room you know there's a lot of people in there it may be that they either don't have any media or just you know a chosen couple i guess uh, you know jamie broughton from bbc radio maybe hector nuns mm. and, a, and a couple of others who can sit you know apart that's i think i think i could understand it if they said no media but I, I would feel a little uncomfortable actually about not having any media at the world championship and relying on you know, we've said before all good guys from world snooker tour but you know there should be some sort of independent presence there i think all this will be worked out in the weeks to come and obviously you know we'll keep our fingers crossed i just wanted to mention one thing this has got nothing to do with snooker but i think you'd appreciate this right uh, captain tom moore now this is the uh, yeah. he, he this is the uh, he, well he, he was 99 when he started it he turned 100 last week He's, for those of you who don't who maybe not from the uk don't know the story this um world war ii veteran and he wanted to do something to raise money for NHS workers. So he set himself the challenge of walking 100 laps of his garden and he wanted to, to raise a thousand pounds. So far, uh, through donations from the public, he has raised nearly 33 million pounds. So an incredible story. But here's the thing and he was his birthday last week, 100, 100, 100 years old. He had thousands of cards, of course, a telegram from the Queen. And it was, but here's the thing that really impressed me that emerged. He was once a contestant on Blankety Blank. I heard this. <laughs> now, now, you know, I, I thought there's no way this man could possibly go up in my estimations. For those of you who don't, those of you who's like under forty or not from the UK, Blankety Blank was a quiz show many years ago. Terry Wogan, then Les Dawson, uh, hosted it, and effectively, you had to basically complete a phrase, and you know that's hence the you filled in the blank effectively. And he was on there. I think it was like a Christmas special. Someone found some uh, footage. Uh, and I don't know. Just I just thought you'd appreciate that because it's it's kind of it's kind of just a bit sort of surreal. You know, you're celebrating this man for, quite rightly for the dual achievements of a you know the Second World War, what he did there, and also what he's done in recent times. But to me, that was the cherry on the cake. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Of course, if you delve deep enough into anyone's past, you'll find an appearance on a BBC quiz show from uh, years ago. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yes. 
Yeah, well, yes. You're, for those who don't know, and I'm guessing most people don't, Michael's on going for gold. But that, but um, you haven't raised 33 million for charity, though. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> but, you know, all donations. Uh, You've been busy. That email address you gave, you know, yeah. this podcast can, I'm sure, raise at least uh, half of that. Yes, indeed. Well, anyway, let's move on. We've had an email from Sean O'Donnell, who is from uh, Ontario, Canada. We seem to have quite a few listeners in Canada, actually. And he said, now, because the other week we were talking about Bob Chapron. We were talking about the one-hit wonders who won mm. ranking events. He says, like many in Canada, I was introduced to the game of snook in the late 80s when I was 19. I played poorly for about six years, then began a family and forgot about the game for many years. When my youngest daughter began university, she began playing pool with her friends. Being the competitive sort, she asked me to help her learn. We began playing once a week, and long story short, I got the bug again. I'm still a lousy player, but I love the game and took the course to become a referee. He said, I refed a match in last year's Canadian Championship between Bob Chapron and a young player named Lobsang Lama. It was a quarterfinal match. A great name, isn't it? Lobsang Lama. Yeah. It was a quarter, quarterfinal match, and watching the warm-up, I was astounded by Lama's potting and cue ball control. He just never looked like missing. Of course, Bob dominated the match and won pretty easily. I was nervous. See, so this is – we were sort of – you know, talking about Chapron, there is a scene still in Canada and it's still dominated by these former players, basically. He said, I was nervous throughout. It's my biggest assignment to date. At one point, I made a cardinal sin of counting ahead in my head, counting ahead in my head. I got slightly confused and hesitated when announcing the score, obviously not sounding so sure of myself. And Chapron, after blowing chalk off his Q-tip, glanced up at me and said, you sure? I wasn't, but faked my assurance and carried on, which, of course, is the, the rock-solid thing to do, always. He says, a great experience for me. Cliff Thorburn also played, and he's still a rock star here, but it was Bob's day, an experience I'll always remember. Love your show. Thanks so much for the great quality show. Well, it's great to hear that, uh, of course, Snooker's still going on in Canada because we were so when we were growing up, we were so used to seeing the great Canadian players. Of course, Thorburn was the, was the leading line. I saw some footage um, the other day of Kurt Stevens' uh, semi-final at the World Championship against uh, Alex Higgins, I guess it would have been, in 1980. Um, which, and you just, like, Kurt was such an exciting player. Obviously, he was very young then. You could see, you know, he, he, he did play the game in a slightly more aggressive manner. He had the, I don't know whether he was wearing the white suit in that match, but, you know, he was a very exciting player. Of course, Werbeneck, we still, I mean, considering Bill Werbeneck, I don't think ever won a tournament. He's still a player everyone remembers just because of his kind of size. And it's good to know that uh, Snooker's continuing in Canada, albeit... Of course, it'd be nice to have some uh, some younger players coming coming through. Kirk never won a tournament either, I don't no. think. Yeah, I mean, he was in the British Open final, but I think uh, that was it. Uh, he won the Canadian Professional Championship, but I think he even only won that <coughs> on one occasion. So you had those guys. You had Thorburn, obviously, was was the leading light. Werbenick, who you mentioned as well, who did get to a major final. Uh, and then Stevens, the three of them won the World Team event together. And then there was a sort of second wave of players, wasn't there? Brady Gollan, Elaine Robidoux, guys like that. A lot of whom used to play at the Masters Club up in Stockport, run by Paul Madati. Rob Spencer, who's one of the best-known mm. referees now, he was very much part of that scene as well with all those Canadians and has a lot of stories about them. But none of those ever really quite got to that level again uh, that the guys in the late 70s and early 80s had. But outside of Britain, Canada was by far and away the leading snooker nation, as you say. Uh, when we were growing up and it was the first country outside Britain to stage a ranking event with the Canadian Masters won by Jimmy White in 1988. But it all seemed to fall apart pretty quickly after that. And there's been no Canadian presence at all uh, anywhere near the top of the game for probably about 15, 20 years now. That's right. Cliff Thorburn said something interesting. He said in Canada itself, if people ever 
talk to him. They always mention him winning the World Championship. He said when he comes over to the UK, they always talk about the Maxpom, uh, obviously three years later, because it was, it was the first at the Crucible in such a, a moment that gets replayed. Speaking of getting replayed, of course, the Crucible Classics series on the BBC has come to an end. And uh, it was very interesting. It was kind of a bit of a jumble in terms of the chron- chronology. And obviously, we've talked before about matches that, that were shown and matches that weren't shown. Um, snooker's always kind of or certainly as long as I've been watching it, has always kind of had this fascination with nostalgia and looking back. And uh, there was a series on the TV recently, Quiz, about the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire trial. Um, Oh, yeah. For those that don't know, there was a a major and his wife went on and were accused of cheating. They were accused of having help from someone coughing in the audience. It was a big trial. It was a play by James Graham, and he he adapted it into a TV show. And there was a great line in there, which, which I think applies to the way we look back at snooker matches. And that, that whole sort of 80s scene. And the line, it was, I can't remember exactly, but it's basically saying about memory. They said that but basically your memory is is actually the last time you remembered something. And what, what they mean by that is if you said to me now, like, describe a typical day from your summer holiday as a child – one of the one of the first things I would say is, well, it was sunny, you know, and we went to the beach and we sat on the beach, we went in the sea. I would never say it rained. Obviously, when I went on holiday and, you know, same with anyone, it would have rained at some point. But you you remember how you want to remember and you remember it being sunny and idyllic. And the thing with the, the Crucible Classics is a lot of people kind of seem to almost be saying it's sort of better than it is now sort of thing. The reason being, of course, because I remember being sat by the fire with their nan. They remember being children, effectively, being young, having fewer worries, you know, not worrying about your kids or crime in the area or the environment or or whatever, what's happening with Brexit, whatever, all those things. They weren't in your orbit. You were just a kid and things were simpler. And I think a lot of people not only remember kind of that, but also they remember the people they were with, maybe have passed on since then and maybe can't look at it objectively because some of the matches that were shown, I mean, that 85 final you know, basically wasn't any good, really, until the, the the end of it was really exciting. But a lot of the snooker, bearing in mind they cut it down for highlights, wasn't great. Uh, the TV coverage was not as good. You know, there weren't as many cameras. The actual scheduling wasn't as good. You know, you, you had to wait hours hours to see coverage. There was no red button and so on. The commentators in the 80s, we, I touched on this with Neil last week, they didn't talk very much. They were told not to. Nick Hunter, the producer, basically ordered them not to. What you saw in the 90s was that kind of moved on and that they did start to talk more. And, and of course, people now say maybe they talk too much. And I think what happened was there was, I mean, in all sports, people talk a lot now. It's it's encouraged and it's just become the fashion. But in snooker, what happened was in the old days, you had a very strict structure. You had a commentator and a summariser. They weren't even called commentators, the other guys. They were called summarisers. Mm. And the idea was you had the, the lead commentator, say Clive, and then a co-commentator, say John Virgo, and they had very clear roles. And what happened was players then started to commentate together and those roles sort of went. So basically they, they didn't really know, do I open the frame? Do I close the frame? And it just became that everyone started talking more. Some people would prefer that. A lot of people I think don't, but it's just, I guess, the way it's evolved. The uh, first frame that I think they showed when they did the 85 final was the eighth frame, uh, the mm. one that went 8-0 to Steve. Now, that would have been the first frame of the second session and not a word was said for about 10 minutes i think at the mm. start of it like literally i was genuinely thinking have i got the sound on here so they would have handed over to the commentators now i don't know whether it was going out live or whatever but you would still think that at the start somebody would say something but literally i think it got it felt like about 10 minutes anyway and balls had been potted and everything before anything was actually said 
Uh, but I agree with you that there, there's, I think people have maybe forgotten it was just a very different game back then. And the, nowadays, the sort of narrative, I guess, of a frame of snooker is you get in and if at all possible, you're looking to win it at the first chance. But that wasn't the culture back then. There were frames that were one in one opportunity, but it wasn't really what you ever expected to happen. It, it was actually quite an unusual thing. The one thing I would say about that 85 final, the frames they showed and I agree with you, the standard certainly compared to today uh, wouldn't be regarded as that great. But the frames they showed were actually, in many cases, the scrappier ones. They left out a lot of the stuff. Mm -hmm. like, for example, on the Saturday night, when Dennis was 9-1 down and then won the last six frames, my memory of that is he actually played really well, but they didn't show any of that. So I think they just went for the, <coughs> the dramatic frames. But absolutely, it just brought home what a different game it was. The pockets were definitely cut more generously. I think we all agree on that. The cloths were very different. But when people talk about the golden age, and we've said this so many times, what they remember about that and why they think of it as a golden age is because the game's profile in Britain at that time was much higher than it's ever been since. And it was just a different world back then. The point we always make, there were only four television channels in Britain. One of them was still regarded as a bit niche. The players were these enormous stars. There were audiences of 15, 16 million regularly for big finals. You just don't get that for anything now, though. Um, but I think that's why people think of it as the golden age. And it is true that the game's profile uh, was at an absolute peak at that time, uh, even compared to the way it is now. But I think that added to the narrative of that final in 1985, because Steve Davis at that time, believe it or not, was by far and away the most famous sportsman in Britain. And he was certainly the highest paid as well. Absolutely. And, and it's worth saying that Dennis, um, I looked this up by the end of 87, after that World championship final by the end of 87 he'd won another 12 titles of various sorts some of them were invitation events but so what he had to be still top players to win them so he, he kind of did press on of course he never won another ranking event and when i say it's no good that might be a bit dismissive what i mean is by the by the standards of for example last year's final exactly, where, we had yeah. where we had 11 centuries it was just, you're right it's a different game a different way of playing the game things evolve things move on and that's happened with the commentary as well but it's interesting a lot of people so on twitter were saying well yeah much better in those days they just let the pictures tell the story well, if if you think that that less is more, why are you there? Why are you then adding to the commentary by giving your opinions online about it? You know, you know, if if it's let let the pictures tell the story, then maybe everyone should shut up. The fact is, go on. Come on, sorry. No, I was going to say the fact is, TV's moved on, and the the actual the actual coverage in terms of the scope of it and the scale of it is just better it is better there's more cameras i mean the direction at the end of that 85 final is terrible actually yeah. and, and where dennis goes to pray at the trophy they cut to steve's face for example um so things are things have definitely uh, moved on in that score you can see it all live somewhere you can see it on the net if it's not on you know network telly it'll be on the euros it'll be on somewhere so you have more choice of where to watch it things have got better you know i know people think it's all better in the old days it, it actually wasn't yeah, no, I think nowadays people want a more analytical approach to everything, really. So you, you couldn't really still have it in the old ways. And a lot of those commentators, we won't name any names, but really the commentary they were doing, anyone with much more than the most basic knowledge of the game could have done the commentary they were doing because they really weren't adding any sort of insight at all, a lot of them. And just another point there, just on a slight tangent, you're talking about Dennis winning all those events and a lot of them were perhaps quite low key in one sense, but some of them had prizes of things like forty mm. and fifty thousand pounds to the winner, like relatively small events. And when you consider that's in mid nineteen eighties money, that'd be like winning one hundred and fifty grand now. And, you know, there were tournaments that mostly been promoted by Barry Hearn uh, that you could maybe win three matches in and be winning prizes like that. So he did very nicely in those years. And of course, 
he won the Masters in another memorable mm. uh, comeback, and that was obviously the high point of that. So fantastic player, Dennis, great competitor, and on his day, actually, a really heavy scorer. Well, my last word on all that is uh, there's a great YouTube channel called MJT Snooker, and I don't know who this person is, but they basically deserve the MBE because they are put they put up throughout the World Championship, and it'll still be there now, hour upon hour of various matches that the BBC showed, and basically all the coverage that the BBC had is up there. So whoever this person is, they've uploaded it. Some well-known matches, such as the 85 final, some more obscure matches as well that you know I wouldn't have seen at the time. There was a match Jimmy White, John Parrott from the from the World Championship 87, which I oh, yeah. had, I had no memory of it, but Jimmy played so well in it. it you know, it's just brilliant stuff. And and but of course, what's fascinating for the likes of us is that I think because we've kind of been there at the Crucible and we've you know we've sort of seen it done. It's all the it's actually all the non-snooker bits that fascinate me. The TV coverage, obviously David Vine is involved a lot. Um, and I, I must admit that there was a match. Um, I think it was actually the 79 final, Griffiths Taylor. They, they put coverage of that up. And it starts the final session with David Vine in the Crucible corridor outside the dressing rooms. And I did get a slight pang watching that because, of course, we, you know, we walked down that corridor so many times to get to the media mm. centre or, or, in my case, to get to the commentary box. And I, it, just seeing it, obviously, it looked a bit different then. It was 40 years ago. But um, that was a sort of slight pang of, oh, I wish I was there. But just seeing, like, the, I mean, there's one... I think it was that match, actually. They cut back between frames to Tony Gubber in the grandstand studio. Now, I mean, that, that's the sort of stuff you want to see. I know I just, yeah. this this kind of turns on its head everything I've just said about nostalgia. Yeah, and then like Des Lynham featured at one point. Um, yeah, gone. Well, just to add to that, actually, it seems like a good time to mention this because only just last night I watched back that program that Steve did back in 2017, about 40 years of the yeah. Crucible. They yeah. showed it again. I, I just I watched it back last night, and I was having all those feelings as well. Mm. One of the programs, and I can't believe this didn't register with me the first time I watched that program three years ago. One of the early broadcasts they showed from one of the championships in the late 70s was presented by John Pullman. I saw that, yeah. Uh, that was all a bit, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I saw that. He was in the arena, I think. He was in the arena. I I imagine that was just a very brief introduction before he then went to the commentary box. And the Mm. other thing I'm going to mention, you mentioned that match between White and Parrott in 87. I do actually remember it very well. And there's a story from that match. Jimmy made a break. I think it was 117 or thereabouts. uh, I think it was in the middle session. And it put him as the front runner for the highest break. He then sold that break to two (laughs) of the press journalists. I think it was Tony Stenson and uh, John Hennessy. He sold it to them for like £10 or something because he was so convinced it was going to be beaten that he, he basically sold it on to them. And if it collected the highest break price, that they would actually pocket the money themselves, which I think was about £8,000. Now, that would have been a bonanza for the pubs of Sheffield because that's mm. exactly where all the money would have gone if uh, John and Tony had won it. But you know who actually ended up beating the break in the end was Jimmy himself because he beat mm. it by a couple of points a couple of days later. And then, of course, it was all voided, although he didn't end up winning the... Uh, the highest break prize himself because Steve won it. But uh, at least he'd pocketed the tenor or whatever it was from the two lads in the press room along the way. Well, Tony Stenson, when he took over as the Mirror's correspondent in the mid-80s, of course, snooker was huge, you know, become huge on TV. And the Mirror took out adverts in the yeah. sort of surround, in the surrounds of Sheffield, the man who knows the game, Tony Stenson. And, of course, famously, he didn't know the game. He'd just been told to do it. And famously, a few days into the tournament, they went down to snooker club for a couple of frames and he asked how much the yellow was worth. Well, when he retired then from the Crucible, I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago, you probably remember this, all mm. of us in the, the Snooker Writers Association decided we would actually get a yellow ball yeah. mounted, 
with the words, how much is the yellow worth underneath it and uh, present it to him. I, I remember actually having a discussion, I think it was during the Masters that year, well, where are we going to buy a single yellow ball? And one of the tabloid journalists uh, from that time said, well, why don't you just go in a club and nick it? But, uh, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't do that. We did. I think I went into um, Abbey Billiards, I think it was, in Dublin and, and, and bought one and we got it done up. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be remembered for a classic quote, although uh, per perhaps not one like that. I think what all of that proves is everything I said about nostalgia is total humbug because I could literally talk about this stuff all day. Anyway, what we are going to do now, uh, 24 minutes into the podcast, is is start talking about this week's subjects. And the first is Peter Ebden, who uh, at the age of 49 has retired. He's had this chronic neck condition and said that he needed – the doctor said basically – you need an operation. He felt that if that went wrong, you'd basically be confined to a wheelchair. He's, he's in a bit of pain, but it's exacerbated if you play snooker. If he stops playing snooker, it's, it's manageable without an operation, basically. So his long career has come to an end. He's been a professional since the game first went open in 1991. We, we always talk about the class of 92, of course, the year before that uh, the game went open. At the end of that season, he qualified for the Crucible memorably beat Steve Davis in the first round, got to the quarterfinals, he had a ponytail. He very much represented, you know, the new brigade then, a sort of exciting flair player. Obviously, over the years, the hair went, the flair went as well. He slowed down, became more methodical, but he also became a regular winner. He won nine ranking events. He was world champion in 2002, UK champion, had a couple of sort of late blooms as well in the China Open into his 40s. And, you know, one of the great players, I guess, over the last couple of decades. So very sad for him that he's had to hang up his cue. Yeah, maybe it's a bit like Samson, the the story of mm. Samson, where he lost all his strength when he lost his hair. Maybe it was the same as you said. He, he Ebden lost his flair along the way. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a very good player for a very long time, actually, and he was one of those guys who you <clears> felt <throat> he had slipped away from being one of the top players, and then he'd suddenly win a tournament again. He did that with the the China Open, uh, which I think was the last tournament he won. But inevitably, we'll always remember him for 2002. And the thing about that championship was there was a remarkably high standard in that. And that semi-final against Matthew Stevens, which again was shown again in that Crucible mm. Classic series. I have to admit, I'd actually forgotten about that incredible match-saving pinky potted. Mm. And having been there, I'd obviously never actually heard the commentary. But when I saw it back a couple of weeks ago, John Virgo said, really definitive statement, that's the best shot I've ever seen. Now, how often do you sit here a commentator in any sport say something as outright and definitive as that but I can't really disagree with him it was an amazing shot to play in in those circumstances and that match really just stood out from his career then the final as well I, mean, I remember that summer 2002 um, there were two things that really stand out in my mind sporting events I attended one was Ireland against Spain in the last 16 of the World Cup in Suwon in Korea. Now, you can imagine what that was like for me as an Irishman. Mm. Three hours of endless drama, finishing in a penalty shootout, absolute heart and mouth stuff. But I actually think I was more tense in the Crucible Arena on the night of May the 6th, actually, funny enough, 18 years ago today, sitting in the Crucible Arena for a final frame finish. And just an outstanding memory. And, of course, he's still the only player, I think, isn't he, to have won the World Championship after winning a decider mm. in both the semi-final and the final. And also, just a little poignant thing as well, I'm fairly sure, you know, we talk about that semi-final against Stevens. I think the last match of Ebden's career was against Matthew Stevens as well, and it also went to a decider, albeit in the slightly more obscure atmosphere of the German Masters qualifiers, uh, which I think was in Barnsley just before Christmas. But magnificent player. And, I mean, you talk about somebody getting the absolute last drop out of their talent that was what Peter Ebden did throughout the course of his career. As you say, it was a very long career and it was a very successful one as well because he also won the UK in 2006. Never won the Masters. Funnily enough, never even got to the final of it. 
and I think was ranked as high as number three in the world for a time. So fantastic player, and uh, it's just uh, another name slipping away from, from that era of the guys who been around for, say, best part of 30 years, really. Yeah, I mean, it was methodical, but he was he, he he took shots on that a lot of other players wouldn't have done. You know, he was kind of, in a way, he was sort of Judd Trump without the flair, in a way. Yeah. You know, in high-pressure situations, that pink you mentioned is a perfect example. He's 16-14 down. It's the pink off the last red. He's playing down for the yellow, so if he misses the pink, he's out of the tournament. Simple as that. Um, and had a lot of bravery in that respect. And, um, you know, but also could... Obviously, we remember the match with Ronnie O'Sullivan could could really get under your skin. He's one of those players who could get under your skin. He was a very particular sort of person. He sort of kept himself apart from a lot of players. He had that single-minded thing, a bit of an obsessive. He doesn't sort of have casual interests. If he's got an interest, he's sort of really yeah. into it. And I would say this as well about Ebden. I, I disagreed with him in most arguments about snooker politics over the years. And I would say several times he was actually provably wrong. But at the end of the day... He was a boy with a dream of becoming world snooker champion, which is the same dream everyone who's ever picked a cure has. And unlike virtually everyone else, he actually achieved it. And you have to respect that. You know, he was a tough player. He was a one-off sort of player. No one wanted to play him. That's probably the best tribute you could actually pay Peter Ebden. Nobody wanted to play him. I personally didn't think he would be world champion. I thought he was too intense. I thought over that long 17 days, all the long matches, it would just take too much out of him. But he did it. And of course he did it beating Stephen Hendry in the final as well. So you've got to give him every credit for that. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's the great thing about sport, isn't it? Because you can have all those things. You can say, well, I disagreed with him politically, and maybe there were a few things about his personality that, you know, people didn't particularly warm to. But <laughs> fact is, he won the World Championship, and that's yeah. the thing you remember most. And that's why we have so much respect for him, that you can separate these things. And that's why, you know, in sport, you can put all the rest of it to one side, go out into the arena, you stand or fall on your own merits and whatever your dealings with someone individually, you will always have that admiration and respect for them if they go out and deliver the goods. And he certainly did back in 2002. And, you know, he tried an awful lot of things. And I know we raised our eyebrows a number of times over the years about various things that he was into and trying. But again, bottom line is through doing that, he managed to win the world championship. And I remember he talked a lot about a book he had read. I think it was called Think and Grow Rich. Mm. Um, and, and he said that had inspired him to win the world championship. I remember Bruce Beckett, the uh, WPBSA press officer at, the, at that time, commenting, "Can't I just do the get rich bit? Can I, you know, can I just skip <laughs> over the thing?" Um, but look, it worked for him in the end. As I say, he won the sports ultimate prize, which very, very few people in the game's history have ever managed to do. Yes, absolutely. And I would say, finally, on Peter Evans, he was a very good world champion in terms of all the commitments that he that he had he you know he he worked very hard at one point he was playing snooker in, in Harrod's shop window literally he would do he basically do anything and he maybe affected his form a little bit but he was a good ambassador for snooker and, and we wish him well in his retirement i think we'll still see him around i mean he did some hospitality work at the masters and he's the ideal sort of person to send in a room with people you know he can you know he can engage them and you know as we say he's been world champion and that you know ultimately you have to respect let's move on to the final topic which is uh, ray morgan has emailed and ray is uh, well i'll just he actually says hi andy but of course that's uh, not <laughs> not not no one called andy here he, he later uh, corrected that he was he said he was on the phone to someone called andy anyway he said, uh, you, and you, you said you and Michael were prepared to talk about anything. What about discussing the unaccountable demise of talented players? For example, Michael White, who has dropped down to 67 in the rankings. Ronnie O'Sullivan had previously tipped him as a future world champion on a radio program about three years ago. Uh, Ronnie said he loved his style of play. Of course, well, it's an interesting point, actually, because 
we don't know yet if there's going to be any tour relegation or not. Mm. Um, my personal view is if the World Championship is actually played, then I think they should go ahead with, you know, business as usual. Um, because actually we, we were only, I know the Indian Open was off, but that was kind of in the balance anyway. The only tournament you actually would have lost would have been the China Open. We don't know if the relegation is going to happen or not. If it does, and Michael White doesn't do well in the World Championship, he may be off the tour, which would be remarkable for someone who's won a couple of titles. Um He's had certain issues. I think he's been actually seeing um, He's spoken about seeing a sports psychiatrist. Um, my view on him is I think sometimes, I mean, he's a very, very talented player. And from a young age, clearly, you know, he won the one amateur effectively at the age of 14 and, and was tipped by a lot of people to be a sort of future star. I think quite often, though, it's the really talented players who find that if they start to struggle, they don't have that much to, to fall back on. It's actually someone like Ebden who's had to work harder at his game one of the reasons he's stuck around a long time is because he has different facets to his game. Maybe some of these players who have got the sort of the more natural ability, if they start to struggle, they don't quite know how to dig themselves out of it. Yeah, and I mean, Ray says there, you know, the, the unaccountable decline. It's never unaccountable. You know, we might not know the reasons, yeah. but there are always reasons why somebody starts to decline. Now, in this case, we do have an idea of it because he has spoken about the problems he's had with mental health issues and that. And, I've seen him at tournaments a couple of times over the last few years, and he's, he's looked really, really down. And it's not, you know, a nice thing to see because certainly any dealings I've had with him, he seems like a really nice lad. You and I, of course, saw him many years ago. He was playing pool mm. with Judd Trump in the bar in the Novotel next to the Crucible. We didn't know who these two kids were, but we, we soon realised. Uh, and absolutely bundles of talent. Now, if he can find someone to help him get his head around his problems, then there's absolutely no reason at all why he couldn't be back as a leading player. I don't think he's even 30 yet. So certainly plenty of time if he can get it right. But of course, if he does get relegated off the tour, that's going to be very, very hard to do. And you could almost drift away from the scene altogether. But I hope he comes back. You know, Welsh players have been such a big part of the game's history. And some of them are getting a bit older now, like Matthew Stevens, who we mentioned. Mark Williams, of course, the best Welsh player of all. You would like to think that somebody like Michael White could be around to continue flying that flag for Wales, along with the younger guys like Jackson Page. Uh, in times to come so we certainly wish him well and hope he sorts out whatever issues he's got yeah and here's why the problem there may not be relegation and, and in this uh, if this happened i would support it there may not be a q school the may you know and therefore if he was relegated he wouldn't have that to go into to get back on again um yeah. these are things that have got to be worked out so i personally hope he stays on i think he's still got a lot to offer as you say you know he's a young he's a young guy but we've seen this before and maybe talk about a couple of other players who've sort of come and gone. I mean, the, the most obvious to me was Jamie Cope. He was in a couple of uh, ranking finals. He was in the top 16, played a terrific match at the Crucible against John Higgins and, and looked like he was here to stay. In his case, he started to suffer from a tremor, a debilitating tremor, which obviously affected his form. And when your form goes, your confidence starts to go. And then it's very, very hard again just to get it all back again. Yeah, I, I mean, he was someone who always seemed very dedicated to the game. So I don't think there were any issues there. He had a very good mentor, Dave, who used to uh, travel with him to a lot of the tournaments as well. So he was getting good guidance there. But he just dropped so quickly. And you think back to you know, 2006 when he got to the Grand Prix final, he looked like an absolute star in, in the making, became a top 16 player and featured quite prominently in a lot of big events. Almost knocked out John Higgins, of course, at the Crucible one year uh, in a really high quality match, one of the years that John won it. So again, someone we'd like to see back there, but we, we've not really heard anything from him or about him for some time now. No, I th I've just realised, I think what links the two of them, Jamie Cope and Michael White, they, didn't they both win Snooker Writers Young Player of the Year at one point? 
well, Jamie Cope certainly did. And yeah, Michael White did as well. <laughs> that, might ex- that might explain it. Well, of course, there's another player who actually won a ranking event, David Gray. I think we mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And he, again, sunk like a stone. Now, obviously, as you said, you know, we don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. Sometimes it can be problems like in Jamie Cope's case, which can't be controlled. That's an illness. Sometimes, frankly, players don't work hard enough. There are examples of players who win tournaments and kind of think they've made it. There are some players who, who don't even win a tournament, you know, do well in an event and start to celebrate. Uh, I think David Gray will probably acknowledge he wasn't always the most professional off the table. But what a talent and what a shame that he didn't sort of keep going. Well, we mentioned that match against O'Sullivan at the Crucible mm. where he played so incredibly well. But then we also mentioned the 13-1 defeat to Dominic Dale. And that sort of summed up his career, really, that week because he could hit great heights in terms of his performance but then just fall away. Even when he got to the UK final, he got absolutely hammered by Stephen Maguire uh, by 10 frames to one. So another player with huge amounts of talent, but he came through at quite a young age and that's what happens. You've got these kids, it's just all about snooker. They maybe don't really pay much attention to their schooling and that. So they just spend their whole lives dedicated to the game and it takes them to the top for a while, but then they get a bit older and other things start to come in. Real life starts to impinge a bit and they don't maybe have the same dedication to it. Maybe it creates inner turmoil in their heads if there are problems going on in, in their real life as it evolves over the years and I think maybe things like that happen with David Gray I, I, he's probably well past now the stage that we're uh, going to see him again I think he was Jimmy's last opponent at the Crucible mm. back in 2006 but again after that as far as I remember he got beaten quite heavily then in the next round so again that was very much the story of his career his ups and downs but he has some good moments to look back on, beating O'Sullivan at the Crucible. Not many people have ever beaten him there in a first-round match. You could count them on one hand. Uh, winning a ranking title and being in the UK final. So he has good things to look back on. But when he burst through, I think we would have expected him to have had a lot more good things to look back on by now. Yeah, and just to tie it all up, uh, we're going back to the email we had about Canada, and this was an older player who, who dropped like a stone, Elaine Robidoux, who had his, he had his best ever season. He got to the final of the German Masters, 96 and then in 97 uh, later that season the semi-finals of the world championship highest ever ranking i think got up to nine in the world and then and this is a story i know a lot of people have heard this but it's worth repeating this shows you how something completely unexpected but can basically destroy your career he had his cue um and he sent it back to the person who'd originally manufactured the cues quite an elderly guy who took exception to Elaine Robidoux putting a, a Riley logo on the queue because he's been sponsored by them so you know had to put it on there didn't like that and basically smashed it up smashed the queue up couldn't be repaired Elaine Robidoux lost all confidence in his game didn't win a match the whole of the next season dropped like a stone and, and within a few years was off the tour some people would sue you for that and probably mm. get a, a large amount of money I mean that, that was a, a terrible thing that happened to him um, struggled for a very long time. He turned up at the Crucible about two years ago, actually. I'm not mm. sure what he was doing there, but I remember meeting him then. Uh, but a player of, of huge talent. And, and actually, when he came through, he got onto the circuit in a very unusual way because he was a non-tournament professional, which was a thing back then. A couple of players didn't turn up at world qualifying, and that gave him the ranking points to then get onto the tour. If you remember, he started his professional career incredibly well, almost got to the Grand Prix final, Ran Steve Davis very close in the Fidelity, was a top 16 player within two years. Never really actually quite reached the heights that I think we expected of him after that. Just when it looked as though he might finally be doing it, uh, when he had that brilliant 96-97 season, as you say, something completely unexpected came along and destroyed it all for him. But he he seemed to be in in good spirits when we saw him there a couple of years ago in Sheffield. 
Um, and uh, yeah, he's, he must be about 60 years of age now, I guess. Sobering thought, that, isn't it? Okay, well, finally, I, I instituted a new feature last week, Book of the Week, because I feel that in the lockdown period, people have got time on their hands and maybe they want to read a snooker book that they haven't read before. So my second uh, suggestion, this is a book that was published in 2005 by Parswood Press, and it's called Out of the Blue and Into the Black by John Spencer. It's the autobiography of John Spencer, something of a trailblazer in the sport, often seemed to be sort of first to everything, um, particularly, of course, first winner of the World Championship when it was staged at the Crucible. He was also the first winner of the Masters. He was the first winner of the uh, world title in the Open Era in 1969 and had a great career. His playing career kind of, obviously, as all, as all playing careers do, declined, but he had a great career as a commentator with the BBC very prominently. He was WPSA chairman, very well-liked man, and towards the end of his life, battled against a horrible condition um, that he raised a lot of money for through charity, uh, passed away in 2006. So a very well-known player, I think even by people who maybe aren't old enough to remember him playing, they know the name John Spencer. Here's the thing about the book, which I'm recommending. It's not actually that good in terms of the way the, 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 the sort of writing. It feels to me like, I don't know whether he had a, a, a ghostwriter or not. It feels to me he's almost like he's written it himself. And that's not, I'm not insulting John Spencer there, but there's no reason why he should be a really talented writer. You know, it's a different skill um, to being a, a player. But it is really interesting. And, and one of the reasons is it's really indiscreet, which which I always enjoy. There's a lot of uh, sort of anecdotes about people. It sounds like, you know, it it sounds like John Spencer telling you the story. And um, there's some fascinating things in here. One of the things was the, the, the sort of rivalry he had with Ray Reardon. They never played in a world final, but they were the two dominant players in the 1970s. And they were very different people. Reardon was very savvy, clearly. He kind of seemed to understand how to be a snooker professional almost before that existed in the TV era. And John Spencer was the opposite. And they played in the English amateur final one year. Oh. Reardon, I think, won the southern section and Spencer the northern section. And the promoter, the tournament director, asked them for a picture, a photograph, to go on the official programme. So Reardon sent a picture of him all dressed up in his dress suit, you know, looking the absolute, you know, absolute million dollars and spencer just didn't cotton on what it was for he just said oh well, i'll get a photograph so he sent them a photograph of him and his swimming trunks on holiday <laughs> <laughs> so on the and it's in the book on the on the program there's spencer in his dress suit and there's spenny in his in his swimming trunks and that maybe just sums up his character a little bit and uh, and of course people assume and it goes back to nostalgia people assume in those days they were all great pals. Oh, it was all good fun and everyone loved each other. Not a bit of it. Him and Reardon basically didn't get on. And there's, there's, a, there's <laughs> one of my favourite quotes in the book. He says here, but done a section on all the players. He says here about Reardon, he says, the thing I didn't like about him, he was the sort of person who could laugh 24 hours a day if it was to his advantage, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is quietly very scathing, isn't it? I think the point... He sort of sense he's formed that opinion. He's kind of honed it over a number of years and decided that, that, that that's how he's going to sum him up. You, you sense he hasn't come up with that on the spur of the moment. But actually, I think Ray would be perfectly happy with that, actually, because he, oh, yeah. he if you know, that was the game. Then the point is they were scrapping over not a lot of money, not a lot of trophies and tournaments. And, you know, they, they were they, they weren't there to be friends. They were rivals. I think they, they actually basically got on all right. But, you know, they were rivals. And if Spencer didn't win a tournament, and Reardon did, then Spencer was disappointed. Same the other way around. Um, the other thing I like about the book is that um, Out of the Blue Into the Black is a line from a Neil Young song, which is a little bit esoteric. But uh, I can recommend it. As I say, it's, it's kind of, it doesn't feel like it's been sort of highly polished. But then again, you know, there's the Andre Agassi book people always talk about, which is really good, the, his autobiography. 
But it doesn't actually sound like the way Andre Agassi was talking. It frankly doesn't sound like the way anyone would talk. It's just really well written in that sort of written way. Um, and it's a consistent style, but it didn't, doesn't sound like his voice at all. Uh, this, to be fair, sounds exactly like John Spencer's voice. There's a lot of really good stories in there. It's, it's sort of fun book. Towards the end, it gets obviously a bit dark when he starts talking about his condition, which was a horrible condition. It made him depressed and, you know, was, was something that he couldn't obviously recover from. But the book is out of the blue and into the black. It's... Uh, I guess available on eBay and Amazon yeah. and all those sort of places. Worth a read, I think, if you want to know about kind of the early days of snooker and and a really a really sort of uh, key figure in the game's development, I guess. Yeah, and I thought he was a very good commentator actually yeah. as well. I mean, I think you mentioned a while ago the commentary he did with Clive Everton on Hendry's Maximum at the Crucible in '95 and how well it worked together. And I think. John would actually have fitted in a bit better than most commentators from that era in today's era because he did bring some insights and actually did explain things a bit more. So I always enjoyed his commentaries. And now he was long finished as a player before I got involved in the game. And I think he was more or less finished as a commentator as well by then. So I don't think I'd ever actually spoken to him until you mentioned earlier those Snooker Writers Association Awards. Well, we used to have a special award sort of services mm. snooker thing every year. And I think it was maybe even the year he died or the year before he died. We gave it to John, and I think one of the reasons was he had done that um, parachute jump yeah, uh, for yeah. charity. So there were various other things as well. But I remember phoning him up because I was secretary of the snooker writers at the time. So it was down to me to ring him and tell him. And honestly, he seemed absolutely delighted. He did use that word himself, actually. He said, I am absolutely delighted with this. I think, I think it just really genuinely meant a lot to him that after all his years in the game, he wasn't forgotten and that the media, uh, as we were at that time, still remembered him and wanted to recognise him. So uh, I, I was delighted that, that that I got that chance to speak to him and to just give him that one last little moment at the end of uh, a wonderful snooker life. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a nice way to end. Um, as I say, the book is available, I guess, online. And uh, I hope uh, if you order it, you enjoy it. We'll be suggesting another one next week. I will give the email address again. If you have any... Uh, I actually wrote down... This is. <laughs> I woke up really early this morning for some reason. I was thinking, what ideas can I have? And I actually wrote down... Tell us your snooker dreams. And then I thought, it's a terrible idea. If, we, if we're literally resorting to people telling us their dreams, we're in trouble. Having said that, I'm now kind of curious because CJ Demui was, was saying that he had a dream that he was cutting Karen Wilson's hair, which is kind of a bit, a bit unnerving, but also, you know, there's, there's something to work with there. Um, so if you want to send us your dreams, please keep them clean is all I'll say. The email address is snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com questions, queries, feedback, whatever you want to say. We're happy to get your emails uh, from anyone. I think uh, that is about it. So, um, oh, Can I just add, if, if yeah. CJ did cut Kyron's hair, I mean, I know from my own experience, if you're an amateur at cutting your hair, you go too far, it ends up all the hair, all the hair comes off. So if CJ did cut Kyron's hair and he did that to him, would Kyron be left with an egghead? A, a nice joke on which to yeah, end. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyone listening to this who doesn't know much about British TV quiz yeah. shows will have learned an enormous amount today. From blankety blank to eggheads, yes. Yeah, CJ was on was on eggheads. It, yeah, it didn't finish too well from I don't think actually. He, he sort of fell out with them, but anyway, that's uh, that's that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, any feedback, questions, whatever, or even if you can top that gag that Michael's just done, then uh, uh, that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Please let us know. We will be back next week. Um, in the meantime, thanks everyone for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.